0: This week's The Interview is brought to you by andrewandtodd.com. Todd.com are the world's best lenders for real estate. They are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. You can call them at 888 1172 And please do, no matter what your lending needs are, andrewandtodd.com. And now welcome to this new edition of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. I'm joined now on the Hugh Hewitt Show in the interview with Hugh Hewitt by Marco Rubio, Senator Rubio, of course, senior senator from the state of Florida. Good morning, Senator. Good to talk to you again.
1: Hey, good talking to you. Good morning.
0: I want to begin with Taiwan because Taiwan is in the news this morning. It turns out that in the Financial Times meeting with Kirk Campbell of the White House yesterday, he told them that he did not want to abandon strategic ambiguity towards China and Taiwan, the Chinese Communist Party, because it could lead to escalation and it could lead to our having to get involved. It's it's almost appeasement in capital letters. What do you think about Taiwan? What do you think about strategic ambiguity? And should the United States defend Taiwan if it's attacked?
1: Well, uh, again, I, I didn't see or hear the interview, but I can tell you that uh, – strategic ambiguity to the extent that it's the you know going along with this idea that taiwan is separate from china independent from china but not its own country is different from where the, there should be no ambiguity whatsoever about our defense commitments about what will happen and what the united states is committed to uh, should should taiwan uh, should the chinese cross that line i think also important in that the, it, the lack of that sort of clarity i think will encourage an attack or, or encourage and um, the chinese to, to to act more aggressively The same is true with the assistance that we provide them. Uh, There should be no ambiguity about the assistance we provide them. It should be abundantly clear on both of those fronts. And I think anything that shows that we're backing off of that is only going to accelerate the timeline in which the Chinese Communist Party is going to make its move. And it may not be military. I mean, look, I think ultimately the Chinese hope, the Chinese Communist Party's hope is that internally within Taiwan, they'll be able to interfere in an election and get them a party or an individual elected who will will then – seek unification or and, and and that sort of thing. I think that's their preference. But uh, but they've made pretty clear that if Taiwan were to ever declare independence, that they would move on them militarily. And the only thing that stopped that from happening already is the notion that the U.S. government with the United States is going to stand up and and, and defend Taiwan and, and live up to our commitments. There can be no ambiguity about that.
0: Let me quote Kurt Campbell to you because I do believe he is the senior Indo PAC spokesperson within the White House and the Biden administration, and President Biden has not contradicted him. Quote, I believe that there are some significant downsides to the kind of what is called strategic clarity that you lay out, Campbell said, in talking to the Financial Times. I think any conflict with China would broaden quickly, and it would fundamentally trash the global economy in ways that I don't think anyone can predict. Now, that seems to me to be an invitation to the Chinese Communist Party to attack Taiwan.
1: Well, what it basically makes clear is, yes, we're with – this is I'm, – I'm paraphrasing, and I hope that they will clear this up because if I'm paraphrasing, what they're basically saying is, yes, we, we're with Taiwan, and no, no yes, we're going to support them, but but not really. I mean, ultimately, if the Chinese become very aggressive and do something, we can't really step forward and do anything because it would hurt the economy, and it would be a bad war, and we wouldn't want to be involved in those kinds of things. So so it's, it's basically, it's a rhetorical commitment, but not a um, – a, a real one. And, and that kind of stuff is dangerous. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't talk that way. They talk about red lines and, and, and big mistakes that don't make big mistakes and things of that nature. Look, I, I don't know the spokesperson. I don't know why he spoke that way, but he sounds like he's speaking to some sort of uh, you know think tank gathering. The, these words are being written, are being read in Beijing, and they've already got preconceived notions about this administration. This one is only going to further that.
0: The uh, Chinese foreign ministry yesterday, again, breaking news, Senator, accused the G7 foreign ministers gathering of uh, meddling, and that's the quote, in its internal affairs after those foreign ministers' backed participation of Taiwan and the WHO. Uh, is that meddling, and should uh, Taiwan be in the WHO, Marco Rubio?
1: Absolutely. Number one, they have a lot to contribute. Number two, there are human beings living in Taiwan, and they deserve to have a voice in a world... Uh, you cannot be a world health organization if the world is not represented and to sort of turn over to the chinese communist party which has hidden and covered up and um and, and and been less than transparent to say the least about the origins of this virus and how it developed and in its early days set the world back in terms of its response by being honest about it to turn over the taiwanese people's health care and and uh, health decisions at the global scale to, to the chinese communist party is, is absurd so they should absolutely be a part of it and China calls anything that's a criticism of their actions as internal meddling. That's the code word they use. And by the way, it's what they go around the world telling governments is, don't worry, we're not going to get involved in your internal politics. Um, of course, they get involved in our internal politics and everybody else. Is. I mean, you can't produce a Hollywood film today that's critical of China because the studios know that it won't be distributed in China. So they're, they're, it's a hypocrisy on the part of the Chinese Communist Party.
0: Now, the third China story before we broaden this out into some larger issues that is in the news is it's reported that they have approached Namibia and Mauritania and for the benefit of the Steelers fans, those are on the atlantic coast of of uh <laughs> on the, uh, of Africa. They want to build a yeah, carrier that's ca- not at
1: the Steelers fans huh? at Cleveland and yeah.
0: Well, 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 We had a great draft, uh, Senator. We are we're clearly bound for the Super Bowl, and the Dolphins are in the way. Sorry, trademarks are coming. They're going to have Browns written on them. Uh, but Mauritania on the west coast of Africa, Namibia on the west coast of Africa. China wants to build a carrier capable port in both of those places. They're negotiating. What should we tell those countries about their uh, relationship with China and uh, a blue water navy facility being on that on the on the uh, west coast of Africa?
1: Yeah, first of all, you have to be very, um, as I said, you, you have to be very smart about how you do it. These, are, these countries are small economies who are desperate to develop. They don't want to be put in a position of having to choose between the U.S. and China because, in their view, they need help from everyone and everywhere. So we should be smart about it and say, look, we're not asking you to pick between us and them. What we're telling you is this is what happens when the Chinese come into one of your ports. They take over that port, and then they leverage it. In essence, they, then it through, or they loan you a bunch of money to build it. And they lease it, but when you can't pay them back, then they take over it, and they use it not just for their navy, but for their commercial ships, which is what they want to do. They want to dominate global shipping in that way. And if you, and and not only that, because you owe them money, they expect you to vote with them 100 percent of the time at international forums on every issue, and 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 so forth and so on to sort of describe to them the way that the Chinese Communist Party uses leverage on these countries. They don't do anything out of the kindness of their heart. There is no such thing as a Chinese global involvement where they get in for the good of mankind by the Communist Party and then leave without asking anything in return. They always ask for more in return than they give. And when you explain that to countries and you offer them an alternative to what the Chinese are offering or some potential for an alternative, it generally seems to work. Most of these countries would prefer not to have this situation with the Chinese. Because, the, the, but but they they see very few options in many cases. So we, we, that's the way to approach it, in my mind.
0: Now, Senator Marco Rubio, you've been on Senate Intelligence Committee, formerly as chair, now as ranking Republican. For a lot of your 12 years in the Senate, you're going to be back in the Senate. You're going to get reelected. You're going to be there at least four more years unless you run for president. And I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But I I want to know what you think about foreign influence operations by the Chinese Communist Party in the United States, with a backdrop that former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo at a meeting of the Nixon seminar last month with Peter Thiel and Robert O'Brien said, we simply have to revoke foreign student visas for every student from the CCP because we do not know what they are doing. What's your belief about foreign influence operations? What should we do about these students?
1: Well, they're very real, and they're very different from what some of the, the crude instruments that, that the Russians would use. When the Chinese Communist Party is concerned, multi, first of all, it's multifaceted. It's researchers. It's, it's graduate students at universities, not so much undergraduate, but graduate students It's business people, but it's also leverage. Look, if you're a major corporation and you do business in China, they don't expect you to just do business in China. They expect your CEO to come back to the United States and lobby on behalf of their interests and their narrative. That's the very clear expectation. So it's real. Look, I expect the Chinese or Chinese interests, uh, meaning companies that do business in China and others that are controlled by people that are leveraged by the Chinese Party, to to be involved in my election, my re-election. They're going to seek to support somebody to try to defeat me. And and, and it'll be legal. They'll be able to do it in terms of campaign donations and influence operations and things of that nature. So I think it's a growing problem.
0: Now, in terms of influence operations, we also have – I had your colleague, Josh Hawley, on the program yesterday talking about his new book, The Tyranny of Big Tech. Until I read that book, I was unaware. I knew that Google and Facebook had robust lobbying presence, but it turns out I may be the only person inside the beltway who is neither elected nor working for Google, Facebook, or another big tech company. It's remarkable how much money they're spending. Uh, is, is the CCP influence operation dwarfed by that of Silicon Valley?
1: Yeah, there's no doubt that it's part of it, um, because all of these companies want access to that market. They've all been dying to get in there for years. Uh, but it extends well beyond just the technology companies. I mean, look, For some of these companies around the world, um, their CEOs are judged on a quarterly basis. you got to go before your shareholders and say, this is how much money we made this corner. This is our earnings report. You're going to have to report if the Chinese kick you out of their economy, that's going to be a big hit in you know, your revenue, and your shareholders are going to be unhappy. So these companies are all willing to do whatever it takes. Even if long term, it's suicide for that corporation because you're going to be replaced by a Chinese company that's stealing your secrets in the short term. For a CEO that isn't going to be around by the time that happens, this is how they're being judged. And so they cave in, and now that they cave in, they didn't come back to the United States and argue, and they did this for a long time and still do. You know we really shouldn't treat the chinese government this way they're moving in the right direction there's a lot of opportunity there if we leave they won't even know what real capitalism is, capitalism is they have they have utilized capitalism against us they understand how to use it against us and they have done it at every level but one of the things they've done is they deputize major american corporations and their leaders to come to the united states and push for and pressure for policies that favor the chinese position
0: now uh, senator in the old days of the Cold War, we had a term called compromised, and it usually meant you were directly on the take uh, or under the coercion of the Soviet Union. Are the companies you're talking about compromised?
1: Well, I wouldn't go as far as to say it in the same th- – I wouldn't compare it to the compromise of the Soviet era, which largely involved you know personal embarrassment and, that, and things of this nature. Here's what I would say. I would say that for someone um, who has a factory in China – and that factory is a key part of your growth for the company in the years to come. And you only have 5% of the Chinese market, but that 5% signifies a significant percentage of your company's revenue. They make it abundantly clear. Hey, you may not be allowed to do much business here anymore. You know, you were, gonna, we're gonna kick you out and bring somebody else in, unless something like this happens. They're pretty, pretty clear about that. That's a pretty clear understanding. And where I think that becomes really problematic is for people like, you know, you might be a mid-sized business, but your, your supply chain depends on you making your product in China, because it's the only place you can make it cheap enough to sell it back here in the United States. And they make it pretty clear to you. Uh, that's a lot of leverage. And they make it pretty clear to you that unless you do what they're asking you to do or, or if you step out of line, they'll close your factory. You'll be done, and then your company will be done. So I consider that to be compromised. I think these big companies, what they're more interested in is in being citizens of the world. You know, these guys—they see a country with a billion and a half people. They want access. They have dreams of getting in there one day. Facebook is banned, Twitter is banned, all the, uh, but but Apple's not banned, and Apple makes a lot of its products inside of China. And so, um, you know, you ask a lot of these companies if they lose the supply and the production capacity in China, it will cripple their company. That's a lot of comp- that's a lot of, of leverage.
0: Do you think CEO Tim Cook of Apple is able to speak his mind freely about China?
1: No. Absolutely. How, about, just, how about Zuckerberg? I mean, they, they, well, I mean, Zuckerberg, Facebook is not in China, but I think they're increasingly concerned about China's growing telecommunication influence all over these other countries around the world. And so they don't want to get, you know, they don't want to start running into problems in these other places where the Chinese go to some country and say, hey, you should get rid of Facebook and replace it, you know, with our version of, the, of, of Facebook. So I think they're concerned about that, absolutely. And, uh, and, and I think he still dreams and hopes that one day they'll be able to get into China. That was always the, At one point, they were willing to design a Facebook that met the Chinese standards. And the, all these companies, by the way, um, they do this all over the world. They will tailor if, – if an authoritarian regime says, you can have Twitter in this country, but you need to censor X, Y, and Z, they'll censor those people for them. and, and they won't, But they won't censor those leaders. We've got world leaders, authoritarian figures who can say whatever they want online – but an elected American politician, Twitter will kick you off. Facebook will kick you off. Two do you think... Total hypocrisy.
0: Do you think Mark Zuckerberg and or Jack Dorsey or any other big Silicon Valley, do you think they understand the Chinese Communist Party, how it operates, what it operates, what its goals are, and what generally the theory of the CCP is? I think they
1: do understand it. I don't think it matters for what they're interested in. Look, I, I don't... I, what I mean by that is... They, they, these folks generally – I don't just mean them. I mean in general, they consider themselves citizens of the world. Yeah, they live in the United States. They have citizenship in this country, but they consider themselves citizens of the world. And, and when you consider yourself a citizen of the world, you don't view things through the lens of what's in the best interest of my country. You, you view things through the lens of what's in the best interest of the entire world. And those things sometimes are not compatible because you – know, the, the, and, and, and so I think that's where the challenge lies here. You know, and, and I think part of it is that. Part of it is the revenue. At this point, you know, these companies depend on revenue based on these business models. And part of it was early on was a lot of, not, 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 I mean, five years ago, eight years ago, social media and the internet, uh, the, the revolutions that were going on. People viewed it as some of the greatest developments in the history of mankind that had democratized communication, democratized information and knowledge. And now it's turned into this Frankenstein monster that has these other side effects to it. And now they're sort of playing defense. So part of the agenda as well is they saw the Democrats take the House, the Senate, the White House and they immediately pivoted to appeasement so they wouldn't be targeted with regulations they don't like.
0: Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is andrewandtodd.com. they with Sierra Pacific. They lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no-money-down mortgages. They help you refinance. So, if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888-888-1172. Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. Speaking of appeasement, Secretary Blinken was on with my NBC colleague, Andrea Mitchell, yesterday talking about China this is what the Secretary of State said, cut number nine. When it comes to uh, China, we've been very clear that, you know, we're not trying to contain China or, or hold it back. But we are determined to uphold the so-called rules-based international order that we've invested so much in over so many decades. And that has been good for us and good for the world. Uh, and I think even, even good for China. So when anyone takes actions that that undermine that order, when they don't play by the rules, when they renege on commitments, whether it's in uh, the commercial area, whether it's on human rights uh, or or anything that undermines that order, we're going to stand up and defend it. And what I've heard in conversations with with, uh, uh, countries around the world is they're determined uh, to do the same thing. What does that sound like to you, Senator Rubio? Look,
1: I'm going to be fair, okay? I don't... entirely think that what he said is is completely, uh, and let me just say this about Blinken, okay? I I actually think he's a lot better than what we could have gotten, okay? And I think he's better than John Kerry was. That said, I mean, obviously he works for an administration whose direction is concerning, and we have to keep an eye on it. China's going to be a rich and powerful country. And if that's what he means by not containing them, he's absolutely right. China is going to be a rich and powerful country for, for the rest of our lifetime and beyond. That's not the issue the issue is whether it's going to supplant the United States, the issue is whether it's going to become the world's dominant country, and the real issue from a national security perspective is whether a dangerous imbalance develops between the U.S. and China, where they become more powerful and have more leverage over us, and there is not a way to balance out against it. Because I think in time, the, the system that they have in place is not a sustainable one. It may take 100 years or 50, but I don't think that the system they have in place is sustainable for a lot of different reasons. But it won't matter if they supplant us, and as a result you know, become the world's most dominant country. That's really the fundamental issue here, and that's what needs to be understood. Okay, China is not going to become more like us as they become richer and prosperous. They're going to become a bigger challenge for us, and we're either up to the challenge or we're going to live in a world where the most powerful country on the planet and the most powerful government on the planet is an authoritarian one that, that takes Uyghur Muslims, puts them into concentration camps, forces them to work and produce goods that are then sold by American corporations in the United States.
0: Now, Senator Ruby, I agree with everything you said, especially about Secretary Blink. And I think Jake Sullivan is a very good national security advisor for a Democrat. I am nevertheless worried that this is appeasement on steroids and it's provocative. And you do have John Kerry with offices at the Pentagon, State Department, and the West Wing. And you've got Joe Biden, who is, uh, as Robert Gates said, never been right about a single foreign policy challenge in 40 years. Are we provocatively weak right now?
1: Well, that, the point here is, and as people, I tell people, yeah, it matters that the secretary of state is on a day-to-day basis, but ultimately the direction and the decisions of, of an administration are not made by the secretary of state. They're set by the president, but they're set out of the Oval Office and out of the West Wing. And what we need to be more concerned about is the fact that you've got a bunch of people inside this administration who have a very different view of this whole situation when it comes to China or are latecomers to it. And it's not just because they're from the left. They're applying people from the right that are wrong about it because in their mind – well, the free market says that it's cheaper to buy you know, pharmaceuticals from China, and we shouldn't disrupt that. That's, that's the free market. That's not the free market. That's, that's our free market versus mercantilist policies on their part in which they are able to control the means of production. They're able to undercut our competitors. Of course you can't produce pharmaceuticals in the United States. We make it hard on our end. And then they come in and they undercut us by subsidizing the company so that they knock all of our capacity out so we lose our industrial capacity. you get got a lot of people who still haven't figured that out, particularly in the finance sector, out of Wall Street. And they give more to the Democrats now than to the Republican Party for a reason. So I'm very concerned about that and the influence that would ultimately have, because I can tell you what those voices are going to be saying when a moment of potential conflict comes with China. And that is do whatever you can not to have conflict because it's going to cost us billions of dollars to the economy. You saw it reflected in the statement made uh, by that uh, spokesperson that you cited to me earlier in this interview.
0: Now, Senator, this is Asian-American Pacific Islander Month. There are a lot of Chinese-Americans who tell me, who are great American citizens, they are worried about an era of McCarthyism towards them. How do we both pursue uh, aggressive defense of Taiwan and of American interests abroad and of human rights in China without engendering any kind of blowback against Chinese-American citizens or uh, permanent residents?
1: yeah, first of all, by acknowledging that the number one victims, the people who have suffered the most under the Chinese Communist Party, are the Chinese people, that, that especially the ones who have come here as, as a result of it, fleeing it. Number two, by remembering that, it, that we have a long history of, of relying on exiles and refugees from these sorts of regimes to, 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 uh, to, to better our country. I think about the community I come from. You know, this country has had a firm policy for the most part against the Castro regime in Cuba for over 60 years, Uh, but it warmly has welcomed the participation of Cuban exiles in American politics. So we were able to separate Cuban exiles who fled and were opposed to Castro from the actions of the Castro regime. And the same is true here. We have to be able as a nation to separate the actions of a communist regime in Beijing from the people, particularly those from the people that flee that situation over there. And we have to do it while at the same time acknowledging that there are students in our universities, particularly at the graduate level, who are members of the Communist Party of China, who are members of the military of China, and are sent here for the purpose of stealing trade secrets and bringing them back. Some of them do it willfully, some of them do it because they're, they're being leveraged, because they're, they're being promised things back home and maybe even threatened. And, uh, and some are here deliberately for that purpose. So we have to be able to deal with that without going around and b- at the same time acknowledging that a, a Chinese American is an American.
0: I want to close on our hemisphere. Since you brought up Cuba, uh, Senator, you've always been very good on this. In Colombia and Brazil, two of our allies with conservative governments, there have been riots and conflicts in the last week. In Brazil, 25 people were killed overnight in one of the uh, favelas. And in Colombia, uh, a couple of dozen people have been killed in demonstrations. What ought the United States to do about these regimes which are under pressure right now? And further, what should we do about vaccine patent uh, uh, Protection or waiver for our friends in Brazil and our friends in India who are on the front lines of the virus uh, fiasco uh, pandemic right now?
1: Well, a couple of points. I think both with India and Brazil, uh, we should do everything we can to be helpful, obviously. It, it's clear that in the United States, we now have sufficient supplies. In many cases, you know, you can walk into a CVS the other day. You could just walk right up and have a vaccine. I went in there to get something else, but no appointments. I mean, we have that availability. And so I'm glad to see that there are efforts being made to sort of further that, particularly in India. The situation is is truly catastrophic. And our partnership with India is going to be critical to the future of the Asia Pacific region. Brazil is the largest country in Latin America, one of the largest countries in the world, and an important ally for us on a number of fronts. In the case of Colombia, I would say to you what I said yesterday to people who have asked about it, What's happening in Colombia is not organic, and I'm not telling you every person on the street doesn't, is, 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 comes from this, but there is clearly and undeniably an orchestrated effort on the part of, the F, uh, of these narco-trafficking Marxist guerrilla groups aided by their international Marxist supporters to destabilize uh, a democratically elected pro-American government. Uh, this is a fact. We know this. We know this has been building. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you're seeing these actions. In fact, it's, I think it's being spurred on Uh, about these elements that seek to undermine and destabilize the government of Colombia for purposes of leading to to, to chaos and either winning the next next election or seeing that government crumble and be replaced by one that's uh, a Marxist one and more friendly to Venezuela, Cuba, and international Marxism.
0: So what should the United States, and particularly President Biden, say and do about Colombia right now?
1: I think we should say that, the, that uh, you know, President Duque is a democratically elected president. He's a great ally of the United States. Columbia, we, if if Colombia goes down, right, if Colombia becomes anything close to what Venezuela has become, our, our hemisphere is in a lot of trouble, and America is going to pay the price. We don't have a stronger partner in the Western Hemisphere than Colombia. They're both capable and willing, and we need to step forward and say that, and we need to step forward and say it is in the national interest of the United States for there to be stability, this is the president and the government that was democratically elected in a free and fair election by the people of Colombia. And, you know, we're going to be supportive of all the initiatives that they're undertaking. That includes, of course, vaccine diplomacy and things of this nature. It includes our continued defense and security uh, partnership with them. But it also needs to make abundantly clear that we're not going to, some, we're not going to turn around and abandon uh, the, the democratically elected government of Colombia uh, because some Marxist elements have spurred on some protests that look bad on TV and Western journalists here in the United States who have no clue about what's behind it because they barely cover the region and don't understand it, just view, view it as some sort of organic uprising of people who are frustrated about the economy. There's well, you, some of that. I
0: okay. want to follow up on that, Senator. One one more question. I'm, I'm abusing your time, but i got to ask. I don't think legacy media understands what's going on in Colombia or in Brazil or in India or in China. I really don't. I think they are completely woke and indifferent to what is on the march around the world. Do you agree with me, and how do we fix that, if I'm right?
1: Yeah, first of all, they don't understand, because a lot of the coverage today is, is, is covered by political reporters. And they don't cover this from a foreign policy angle. They cover it from a domestic political angle. What does this mean for the elections and public polling and things of this nature? These are nuanced and complicated things. But this is not a time of nuance and, complica- and complexity. This is a time of very simple, can I write a story that will outrage you and get you to read and click? So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is they don't understand. I mean, yeah, look, there are correspondents in these countries that cover this. And by and large, we know that there's a leftward lean in journalism, not just in the United States, but around the world. That's a fact. And that bias is always going to play in. It, it bias may not play in in terms of everything they write may be factual. But if you get to pick the facts and ignore other facts, you get to set a narrative. And the narrative they always set is any government that's pro-American, especially if they're right of center, is evil and doing something wrong and the people are standing up to them. Any government that's left of center and anti-American is a government that's brave and courageous. And it's the U.S. or some other element that's we're not doing enough to help them. And that's why people are upset. That, that's well, always and, the narrative, story after story.
0: Well and truly said, Senator, thank you for your extra time this morning. I appreciate it very much. We'll post it up on the interview with you, Hewitt. And I look forward to talking to you often in the, uh, in the year leading up to your reelection campaign. Thank you, Senator. Sure. Thank you. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888 888 You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.